0: book of Luke. It's chapter 24. And uh, as uh, when you read through the Gospels, you'll see Jesus regularly encountering people who doubt and how He relates to them. And in Luke 24, there's a couple of folks walking on a road after the death of Jesus, and they're wrestling with everything that's gone on. And Jesus uh, meets with them. And so I'm going to read it for you. That very day, two of them were going to the village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. So that's verse 13 of Luke 24. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? Which is to say, what are you guys talking about? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen visions of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And Jesus said to them, Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself." So they drew near to the village to which they were going. And he acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, and their eyes were open. And they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? and open to us the scriptures? Uh, when I uh, come to this passage, I think about wonder and the loss of it and how that um, shapes our doubts. Uh, and I think of a strange place, maybe. It's a character named Eeyore in uh, Winnie the Pooh. And Eeyore if he is a donkey, and he has a bad time of it. And uh, whenever you encounter Eeyore in Winnie the Pooh, particularly in the, the books, he's, he's, uh, he's even more sad and distraught in the books than he is in the movies that we watch. And if you were to say, you know, something to Eeyore, hey, Eeyore, how are you? He would say, it's good to be recognized. If they're in a, a hole in the ground and they're all trying to find a way out, Eeyore's the one, he's not trying anything, he's just saying, we're all going to die. And when you know Eeyore's story, you get to realize why it is he expects so little out of life. Why he expects pain. Well, he loses his tail. He can't find his tail. Or he tries to build a house for himself because he doesn't have one. So he finally gathers a lot of sticks to build a house for himself. And Pooh and Piglet have in their mind they should build a house for Eeyore. And they're looking around, trying to find sticks. So they take all of Eeyore's sticks, unbeknownst to them and to him, and build a house for Eeyore. All the while, Eeyore can't find all the sticks he gathered to build a house for himself. And then when they finally do find the house, uh, the house gets knocked down. So Eeyore just continues to have experience after experience with difficulty and pain. And, uh, you know, the, the reason the character's in A Good Story resonate with us is because they remind us of people in real life. And there are people, and you might be one of them, who seem to have experience after experience that doesn't go your way. Or you might know a very good friend or family member for whom this happens to them. Think about that because there are reasons to doubt. Some people have good reason. A person like Eeyore has good reason to doubt that there's any wonder in the world or that he should be loved at all or have a friend. And in this passage, the the folks that we're encountering have good reasons to doubt. And I want to try to point that out to you. Um, they have good intellectual reasons to doubt, good emotional reasons to doubt, good experiential reasons to doubt. Emotionally in verse 15, it's just a uh, uh, they're aghast, you know, they can't figure out Jesus. Like Jesus asks him, So what's been going on? And Cleopas says, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? That's saying, that's You've got to be kidding me. What do you mean, what's going on? Are you clueless? Where have you been? So the irritation in Cleopas' uh, experience is because they saw a loved one die and no one did anything to stop it. And it's more than that, it's the, the social injustice of it. It's the same thing Thomas experienced, but Cleopas names it, and he says it here, our own chief priests and leaders. Our people, our own leaders, the, the folks we turn to for spiritual nourishment, the folks we turn to to learn the Torah, the folks we turn to that taught us to pray in, in synagogue. Those same people are the ones that did this. And then they have shattered dreams. He said, we had hoped. We had hoped. I mean, I think you probably know what it is in some way to hope for something and it not come to pass. Uh, For some people in life, and maybe you're one of them, they have prayed and prayed and prayed that a loved one would not die. They had hoped in God and put all of their hope in Him that the loved one would not die. And the loved one does die. And, and uh, 35 years later, you're hearing their story and that's why they don't believe in God. Because our own people did this. We had hoped. And God did nothing to stop it. So they're experiencing that. And it seems to me that that's a pretty good reason to doubt. And they have an intellectual sense of things too. They say you know, we've checked this out. We're confused. Some folks from our own company have come and they've said, the tomb's empty. And so some of the others of our group went to check it out and they saw an empty tomb but they didn't see Jesus. There's just conflicting reports among our own group. Uh, And a little bit uh, up there, just a little bit before in verse 11 of chapter 24, it says that when Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women, when they... Uh, saw this situation, and Mary Magdalene told um, Peter, James, John, and the others, hey, Jesus is alive, the tomb is empty. Uh, If you believe uh, um, contemporary atheists, you neighbors who are grappling with these things, uh, a dear neighbor friend who's an atheist would say, these people are unenlightened, they're uh, gullible, they all believe in fairies and myths and stuff, we're the age of science, we know what's real and empirical, empirical, and etc. But you just don't encounter that with these resurrection stories. You continue to encounter people who doubt them, the people who were there. And so Peter, James, and John, their first response in verse 11 is that this is an idle tale, and they don't believe them. So Mary Magdalene comes and says, "I've seen the Lord." And the primary disciples say, "Yeah, you're just something. Something's off. It's just your grief." You know, and it's like a fairy tale for them, and so intellectually that doesn't make sense. So you don't just have people just happily uh, believing that someone rose from the dead. That's just not a norm, and uh, they're scratching their heads about it, and they don't see anything about it. And then experientially, it's this whole group together, and they all know each other, and they're very confused. Um, and so there's an experience that can happen, just like it did for Thomas. It can for you and for me. And particularly if you are a, a Christian person and if you have grown up in a Christian home, if you've gone to church most or all of your life, if you've been in Christian schools or homeschooling most or all of your life, if you're now at a Christian college, if, uh, if that has been somewhat shelter for you and if you have uh, not been uh, exposed to the nature of the miseries of the world, what our theology calls the fall, the miseries of this life, what actually goes on in the world, if that has happened to you, then at some point in your life, something's going to happen and it's going to be really bad. Not even necessarily to you, but someone you love. And you, like me, will be crushed by it and you will say, is there a God? Even though all your life you heard God talkers like me tell you God stuff like this. But what I'm trying to, to say is that that stuff's right here in the book itself. These are the stories the book tells about people like us who encounter situations that cause them to pause and doubt. And that's happening here. So the first thing is this. Um, there will be people in your life when you, that you meet them and they're doubting in this case again it's the resurrection but they they think this Jesus stuff isn't real in some way and uh, uh, what you will what you might ultimately be asking of them is what happened in your life what's your story what's the providence of God in your life if you want to be more like that what what's happened and uh, has there been anything happen in your life that would cause you to doubt that there's a God well all the original disciples would say, yes, there has been. And so sometimes doubt just makes sense. What does that do? It slows us way down on um, any kind of social media when someone has a doubt. It slows us way down before we just slam them with our answers. Um, It slows us down with family members and friends who have some type of doubt And we want to know who is this person and what's happened to them. And so doubt can make sense. Uh, I'm an old guy, so I just love this old show. It's called Foil's War. It's like a BBC slow-moving World War II type mystery. And uh, I need those slow-moving shows because I I struggle with anxiety and depression. And sometimes the amount of stimulus that goes on in every fast-moving thing in my life, I can't handle it. So I need slow-moving stuff, so that I can slow down, as part of a holistic approach to dealing with that anxiety in my life. So I like an old BBC show, in which it you know they're driving down the road and they show that for like three minutes, and you want to say we get the idea, we know it takes a while, you know, but um, and in one of those episodes, they're trying to solve a mystery. They're in the wreckage of World War II. They're looking at all the carnage that's there, and one of the characters says to the other, do you believe in God? And the other character looks around and says, I used to. And what's interesting about that is uh, I was in England not too long ago talking to some ministry leaders there. I raised the question. These were campus ministry leaders. I just said, uh, what is it? Do you think? I mean, do you guys talk about this? Like, What, what are some of the primary reasons that uh, Great Britain has moved away from God. And the very first answer that those folks gave was World War II. It's interesting. Interesting how uh, a catastrophic or troubling event can shake our faith right, and cause us to doubt. It makes all the sense in the world. And so this makes all the sense in the world for them uh, to see that. Sometimes we lose uh, a sense of wonder and a sense of hope because all we can see is the wreckage. Now for others of us, we need a lot of help. There are some of us in here that that would be a discussion for another time. We're always trying to keep the vibe light. We're like always happy, everything's a pleasure, everything's wonderful. We're like Tigger, (laughs) and we're just bouncing, bouncing, bouncing all around. That's a discussion for another time. Others of us though... Uh, Look right at the darkness, and uh, we're like some old 90s band. I walk alone, I walk alone, I walk alone, I walk alone. I walk alone, I'm still walking alone, I still walk alone. And it's just there's no hope. And as a matter of fact, um, just take a look at um, Netflix, uh, if that's your thing of choice, uh, as an example. Take a look at Netflix. Take a look at all the new shows that are coming out. And notice how dark they are. Just notice. Just observe. I'm not even grumpy about it. I'm not even saying you shouldn't watch them. Maybe you should. There's probably some good stuff. I'm just saying notice how dark everything is. Uh, One of the things that happens to us is we begin to practice the things that cause despair. 24-hour news cycles which tell us bad news. Then I turn on a zombie show and binge watch like four of them, in which everyone constantly almost always dies. And then maybe I watch This Is Us, and I cry, and I cry, and I cry, and I cry, you know. Uh, if I decide I want to commit to a whole movie, you know, maybe I do, and then it's just dark. And, uh, and so what happens is we're just surrounded by darkness and it is our liturgy it's the way we get through a day it's our practice and uh, when that happens we can't see what's right in front of us and uh, these folks can't there's there's more to their life than the crucifixion but they don't know it there's more than the corruption of the chief priests Uh, there's more than the confusion that they have about whether this is a fairy tale or not There's more than all that. All that is true, and there's more to it. But they can't see that, and I'm that way, and maybe you're that way sometimes. Doubt makes sense, but when doubt becomes a way of liturgy, a way of getting through a day, it cannot get us out. Uh, It keeps us within its frame. Notice how Jesus responds to this sense-making of doubt. And why we want to notice it is because sometimes what causes doubt in these situations is that is, uh, we, we have to define the relationship. We began to introduce that this morning. That if um, uh, we're asking the question, well, if this can happen and God didn't stop it, what does that say about God? Maybe God's not who I thought God was. And so just like you would in a relationship with a friend or with a, a, a boyfriend or girlfriend or something like that, a parent, there comes a moment where you have to define the relationship. Where are we going? What's been happening? Uh, I thought you were this way. It's looking like maybe it's different. What, what is this about? You'll have times in your life where you'll do that with God. Something will happen and you'll say, Wait a minute, whoa. Are you the kind of God that lets that kind of thing happen? Are you the kind of God that won't stop a thing like that? What does that mean about the kind of God you are? And uh, sometimes you'll encounter folks who have let go of God, walked away from Jesus. Maybe you're tempted to think about that too. And they've done so because of, of um, they don't uh, want to believe in a God who would be like such and so. And uh, most of the time, I end up saying with such a person, I wouldn't want to believe in that God that you rejected either. I would reject that God too. Who is the God we're talking about? And so, we learn his ways as we read his word. So, look at how surprising it is, the way Jesus interacts with these people. He's very subtle. And that's a surprise to a lot of us. Where are they? They're on an ordinary road. There's two of them. Where is he on the road with them? Just an ordinary road. Nothing special. Just some back road somewhere. And that's where he is. And notice that he plays dumb. God does this all throughout the scripture. Adam, where are you? Uh, Cain... Where's your brother? Hey, guys, on this road, so what's been going on? And when they say, uh, you know, don't you know about these things? In verse 19, he says to them, what things? Now, we should pause right there and think about that for like four months. Uh, a lot of us think of Jesus as just always making statements. He's like the prophet or something. But uh, he's just walking on the road, slow moving. He does what the wise do. He's asking questions about things he already knows to draw out their heart, not to bait and switch them, not to trap them, but not to assume how they might talk and how they might answer. What things? Now, he's been at the center of those things. He knows what they are. But he asks them, what things? And that allows him to hear how they talk, what they would say, how they would put words to it. It's very subtle. Some of us could hear Jesus say what things like they did, and they assume like, who are you? Where have you been? Are you this out of touch? You don't know? And Jesus absorbs that. He's willing to let you think he's a doofus. He's, I don't know. That, is that from like the 80s or something? What's a doofus? What do you say these days? I don't even know. He's willing to let you think that about him. He's willing to absorb your irritation. He's will, uh, willing to absorb you thinking him foolish. And he stays with you. He just stays with him there on the road. Asks him the question. Why are you doubting? What are you guys talking about? What do you think? Drawing out their heart. And then uh, he, he says, Foolish. Oh, foolish one, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. My question for you is when, when you hear the Lord say, when you hear Jesus say, Foolish, what tone of voice do you read into there? You know, Oh, foolish ones! Is he some kind of Shakespearean actor for you? Is he some kind of sarcastic, uh, passive-aggressive, abusive person? Foolish one. Is he some type of what? What is it? Is he your eighth-grade coach? Is he your parent? Is it a God-talker like me? How do you hear the voice? Well, let's remember that these are people he loves. These are people he's given his life for, this whole community of folks. Um, uh, he calls them his own he's going to send them out can't it just be oh foolish ones can't it be that oh foolish ones so slow of heart to believe how would someone who loves you say it they're not trying to slam you mock you put you down Slow to believe. There it is. Doubt. Slow to believe. Slow means hesitant. Cautious. Could even mean cynical. Resistant. Uh, To believe in your inner life. There's a hesitance. To risk. To put the foot on the pond. The way we talked about this morning. And so Jesus is subtly with them on the road, invitation, drawing them out with questions, speaking uh, confrontationally in love. They still don't know it's him. And the next thing he does is open the book. That's interesting. To interpret the social injustice and shattered dreams that they've experienced and uh, the disillusionment of their own leaders doing all this, Jesus says, "Let's, let's look at the book. And he opens to them the scriptures from the Old Testament about what that has to do with him. Now that's amazing. You might know someone who says, Jesus, I like the Old Testament God, I don't like. And there's a lot to say about that. The only thing I would say is if you like Jesus, and you think Moses is a jerk, then one of the things you might do is ask this question. Why did Jesus like Moses? What was it about Moses that Jesus seemed to like? Because Jesus is regularly quoting from the Old Testament. He seems to esteem the Old Testament and its God. Why would that be? Jesus is so awesome over here. He loves like nobody else. And if that's true and you think that's true, then why does he like what you don't? What, what is it about it that he sees? And then you can just bring that to him. You can say, Lord, I think you're amazing. You are compelling to me. I don't like what I read in the Old Testament. You seem to esteem and highly regard what you read in the Old Testament. You seem to quote it and want to teach us from it. Help me see what you see. So you start with the faith you have. Jesus is compelling. And you stand there. You ask him to help you see what he sees. Because when he reads the Old Testament, he sees himself. And that's, you know, that's a a year's worth of classes or something right there. Just in that verse. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. It's just an ordinary town, an ordinary place. Um, Fairyland. is that how you're supposed to say it? I took a picture uh, and sent it to my daughter Abigail. Uh, Fairyland Pharmacy. I thought she would love that and get a kick out of it because we enjoy fairy stories as C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton did but I realized I was saying it wrongly it's Fairland right just an ordinary place is what I'm getting at some ordinary village maybe where you live Jesus just goes there and check it out in verse 28 he acts as if he's going to go on what is that about He acts like he's going to go on. So they're walking along together. We're asking the question, how does Jesus relate to them? They're walking along together. He opens the scriptures to them. They're all sort of standing there. And Jesus says, well, it's been good talking to you. God bless you. And he starts to walk on. What do you think that's about? With Thomas, it was eight days later. With these folks, it's, it's been good to talk. See you later. And what does that do? It draws their heart out. And what do they say? Wait! And there's the question. What would you say? If it looked like Jesus was going to go on, what would you say? Would you be content for him to Wait! Stay! He says, okay. <laughs> and then they go back and they eat some food. It's just really subtle and ordinary. You know, wouldn't you just think that Jesus should do some type of monumental stuff here? Like loud voice, breathe some type of dust and show you some type of Gandalf type thing. But he's just eating food, asking questions on the road right where you're at, drawing out your heart. And then when he breaks bread, they see him. Now here's the thing about that. I don't think there's any magic to that. You can test it out and see what you think. I just think if you've been with a guy who breaks bread and fish and then feeds thousands, you just don't forget that. And so... He breaks bread, and they're like, "It's you," <laughs> you know. Uh, and then I don't like the next thing it says. He vanished. What? He vanished. A couple thoughts about that. Number one, the fact that he vanished, this whole supernatural thing, has a lot of us bothered. I'll just say a couple things about that. Number one, you and I are a minority in the world. I know it sounds like people who uh, uh, don't believe in the supernatural are the w- is the way of the world, but we're a minority it, it's It's a minority position among educated Westerners and some Easterners. but um, we can check that out. but in the history of the world and even in the world right now, most of most of the people who exist believes in the supernatural. that doesn't mean anything. they could all be wrong it's just it gives us pause a little bit. The second thing is there's just stories, and it's part of the data. There are New Testament scholars who are just gathering stories of miracles in history and today, and they're just chronologizing them for you so you can read them one after another, one after another, one after another. And it's just the data of all that. And so I was uh, on a street uh, walking in a neighborhood I saw a light go on. I felt an immediate impression, some kind of thing internally that I should go over and knock on that stranger's door. I'm a Presbyterian. This does not happen to me every day. Uh, I think to myself, this is crazy. This is weird. What is this about? Uh, So I just start to walk on and as I do internally, I feel dreadful, like I'm sinning, like some kind of thing is going on there. I should go over and knock on that stranger's door. And so... I think to myself, if I go knock on the stranger's door and if someone was watching me, would that look crazy? What would they see? What would they look like? Well, it would look like someone just walking over and knocking on a neighbor's door. That's not very crazy, right? And the Lord tells us to reach out to our neighbors. So, okay. So I go over and I knock on the door. Older, an elderly woman opens the door. She is covered in tears and snot, not, not just the whole thing. I say, hello, I live... I live a couple blocks over. I was walking in the street. I felt like I should come over and say, Hello, are you okay? No, she says. Uh, I'm a pastor. Uh, She says, Come in. So we walk in. Her husband is on the couch. They had just gotten home. That's why the light switch went on a little while ago. He had just found out he had a couple of weeks to live. I ask, um, they tell that. She tells it. He's stoic, just staring. I say, what do you say? I say, uh, uh, do, you, uh, do you believe in God? She says, you know, immediately through her tears. He doesn't say anything, right? I say, do you know that um, God sent his own son, Jesus? She shakes her head, yes, he doesn't move. And then I just tell about God who so loved the world. No matter who we are and what we've done, we can be forgiven and reconciled to Him and go home and be with Him where we were meant to be. Uh, He doesn't move. She uh, begins to weep. I ask, may I pray? I begin to pray. As I pray, everything in her calms, calms down. He never says anything to me that entire time. I say, well, I should go. So I get up and go, and I leave. I never saw Him again. To this day, I have no idea what that was. I don't know if I was there for him. I don't know if I was there for her. All I know is the Lord uh, was, in my mind, that's how I'm interpreting it. The Lord must have loved them so much that he draws near to a little village on a road in Nowhereville for a couple in that house. They just had the news, right? Uh, I just told you a story, and it happened. How do you interpret it? Did I just... What did I, did I just intuit it? Did I make up stuff? Did I, what, how do you interpret it? So the the story that I'm telling you is a fact, what now? So anyway, there's just, Jesus vanished. I don't know what to do with that other than it's right there. And I also know this. I know that uh, they have to learn to live with this. Just like Thomas has to learn to believe, to walk with him by faith, Jesus is discipling these folks Um, their uh, interest in him and his in them isn't dependent upon them constantly seeing him. And so right when they realize it's him and they realize that all of this all along has been centered in him and in all the natural world and all the things they see, there's more to it than that. And they're awakened to that again. And the wonder is in them because they say, didn't our hearts burn? Then he goes. He goes. And now they're left with wonder again. What do I mean by wonder? It just means that they still see all the stuff that it makes sense to doubt. But now they realize there's more data than that. There's something larger, higher, wider, deeper than that. But it came so subtly. Let's end here, and then we can talk about it. The subtlety uh, often surprises us. It may be it's something like this, the subtlety of God. If uh, let's imagine you came to uh, someone came to Riverside Church where I serve and they uh, they asked, you know, is the pastor here? It's a work day or something. Is the pastor here? They're from the neighborhood. They don't know me. They've never met me. And uh, Mary, uh, the administrator is right there. And she says, yeah, yeah, he's here. And um, and uh, they say, oh, okay. well, uh, where will I find him? Well, you'll probably find him out and blah, blah, blah. And then, and you, then the, that neighbor says, "Well, what does he look like? Because I don't know who I'm looking for." And if for some reason Mary said, "Well, he's like six foot four, he's balding with a beard, and looks like he works out," that person would say, "Okay." So then they search the whole place. They come into the room where I am, where I'm hammering some stuff. They come in there, they look all around. I say hi, and they say hi. And then they keep going. They look all around, and uh, then they come back and go, come back to Mary and say, "Huh, ah, I didn't see him." And Mary says, "Huh, I thought he was here." And then the neighbor leaves. Well, the problem there uh, isn't that I wasn't there. I was there the whole time. The problem was the description. What the person was looking for. I'm not 6'4". I don't look like I work out. I'm not balding. and I don't have a beard. Sometimes we don't see God because we're looking for the wrong thing. Sometimes God's right in front of us, but the way God works is subtle. Often. Yep, sometimes he can send a whole entourage of angelic armies into the sky and say, uh, you know, good news. He just doesn't do that very much. Have you noticed? Most of the time, it's walking on a road, drawing you out with questions and all. I'm just saying, what if all the darkness that you see that makes so much sense to doubt and we're affirming that it does. And it seems like God isn't there. I'm just saying, what if he is? He seems to work in ways that we don't often expect. Drawing us out, walking with us, asking questions, playing dumb. He doesn't seem concerned. uh, that a selfie's taken with him. He doesn't seem concerned to let Pontius Pilate know, ha, 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 ha. He doesn't seem concerned about that. What he's concerned about are the people that he loves and who he's pursuing and encouraging them and giving them hope. Well, let's just pause there and give thanks, and then we can just talk about it. Lord, we're just thinking about your word and who you are, trying to make meaning and sense of it. We ask that you would open our hearts to you and lead us that we could find solid ways of stepping, walking, and living. We ask that you would open our eyes so we could see the wonder alongside the heartbreak. And we pray that you would fortify us as we bring our doubts to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. so we're just meditating looking at the scripture together um, all right, do you have any questions you'd like to ask if you're a introverted this is your time to write something down and think if you're extroverted this is your moment to shine just like just say it on out there and um, you can ask about anything that uh, I've said or anything that's on your mind as it relates to doubt and faith Yeah. Okay. This is hopefully not too off topic, but I mean that reading the lobby book, uh um, at least not that I know yes. right now. And I was just wondering like what's the one of the biggest takeaways you had from like, all of your missionary break and stuff? Yeah. Which book is it? Uh, lobby. Okay. I-A-B-R-I. Oh sure. <laughs> right, right, right. And what's the biggest takeaway for me? From your missionary phenomenon. Mm-hmm. The river, the mm-hmm. I think the that's such a good question. I think that one of the biggest takeaways for me Uh, is that God visits with us in small, mostly overlooked ways. It's usually by a sink, or in a yard, or washing dishes, or singing. I don't know. He's really subtle like this. And uh, I think a good part of my life, I miss that. I still can, because I'm, you know, all of us are saturated with... You have to do large things as famous, uh, large things famously as fast as you can. That's that's the culture around us, even our Christian culture, uh, the Americanized version of it. Large things famously as fast as you can. So we're always trying to do all that, but most thing that matter, most things that matter in life, require us to do small, mostly overlooked things over a long period of time. Friendship, parenting, learning to play the piano, becoming skilled at your job, getting through college. You know, small, mostly overlooked things over a long period of time. I think that's the big takeaway. And so I, I'm, off, I'm often looking sort of for the big thing God would do. And sometimes I've missed it. It's just right in front of me uh, in a person or a moment. And so my big takeaway is little things can be big. <laughs> yeah. That's a good question. That's a great question. Thanks so much. Uh, That's a good one. My personal definition uh, would be something like, I'd probably go to Colossians chapter 1, where all things seen and unseen are held together by Jesus. So by wonder, I just mean that. Jesus is involved more ways than I can see. There's more in front of me than what my eyes physically behold. Yeah. It's probably some way to get at the the, uh, hint of the supernatural. Yeah. Um, What if all you've ever known is doubt? And what if doubt overpowers everything else in your life? And yes, you can turn to God. Yeah. um, Yes, that's such a deep question. I mean that wonderfully. I mean that wonderfully. That's a real question. And uh, yeah, my, my first thought may not feel like good news, you know, as an as a, um, as a, as a Eeyore uh, myself. Uh, it could be that you will it could be that such a person will experience that all their life. Um, it could be, not to the same degree, but it could be that um, we, it just, we never become the worker at Chick Fil A that says my pleasure. That we, we always are aware of darker things, and. Um, why that can feel uh, overwhelming at first like there's no hope then And I would pause there and say I, that isn't the conclusion that I would draw. The second thing is that uh, uh, persons who uh, see the really what's there as it relates to darkness, hardship, pain, misery, those folks are the ones who can office offer often speak hope to us, because the hope isn't trite. It's hard fought for, and, uh, and because a person has known what it is to suffer in some way, or to feel numb, or to feel apathetic, or because that person knows that, it takes more faith for that person to do less so an optimist, the Tigger, it doesn't, it doesn't take a lot of faith necessarily for them to do whatever. They're just naturally whatever. It would take faith for them to do tears. When the hardships hit, they won't know what to do. Can you imagine Tigger crying? So a person like you're describing is a gift. But it's hard fought for. And that's why um, a book like Ecclesiastes is my favorite book in the Bible or Job. Uh, because those books give language for pain. You know, um, if, you know, if you were to come in, if you were to, you know, you're going to go hear someone preach, a teacher comes in here, and if I'd, if I'd come in here and like stood up here and did my hair, you know, or something and said, meaningless, you know, meaningless. We would think, what kind of stuff is this? Get us a Christian in here. <laughs> I'm just a- quoting the Bible. I hate my life. I hate the business of life. I wish I'd never been born. It's better that I'd never been born. I'm quoting the Bible. So that, um, it takes great faith to talk like that and to step that clearly into the brokenness and the ecclesiastes for example tells us that's where the wise are tells us that the wise if you want to find wisdom go to the funeral parlor the wise are there the wise uh take that stuff to heart does it mean they don't have joy no it doesn't mean that of course they have joy it's just that Jesus was a man of sorrows and the joy is found in there and so uh the conceptions of joy, um, say in our movies and television shows and in some of our Christianities, you know, that it's always a pleasure and everything's good and everything's wonderful, is an illusion. So that's what I mean. You'll never have that. And I would say, that's a rescue. You've actually not missed out. You've been rescued from an illusion. So now what? Well. With that view of the world, you're asking the Lord, Lord, you've helped you help me see darkness clearly. Teach me to see light, you know. Teach me to see the wonder. Teach me to see how you are located here, so that I can experience you in that way and long for what's coming. It's something like that, and um, and uh, folks uh, will find hope in your. Romantic realism, you know. We need friends and community if that's our lot, you know, if that's our gift that we offer. We, we need people uh, so that um, when we lose sight of wonder, we're, we have people who help, help, who hold us and help us remember it. But at the end of the day, we'll be the ones encouraging them because they can't see the, the reality that we see, which limits the way they can love a neighbor. Yeah, it's something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between doubt and desire? Because, for example, the guys in to and Thomas struggle with doubt, but they also it seems to me that their desire, for Jesus is very great, great. Yes. And, you know, their hearts are bringing them, and, and Thomas is you know, my Lord, my God, kind of thing. Yes. Because um, for me, sometimes there's a struggle of doubt, but I don't, I don't feel like I have that desire, of Thomas, or and maybe yeah. that's trying to compare myself to a really high bar. Hmm. But I, I don't know when people talk about desire, or what, or what you do, perhaps to, to try to stimulate. Yeah, I'm just amazed at the wisdom you have to even know that about yourself, really, and the grace to say it. Uh, that's very insightful. Uh, well, uh, these are all um, things that we live with, you know, these are conversations, but uh, a short beginning answer to that is uh, acknowledging that I don't have desire um, don't have desire for what? Maybe is a desire for God. Is it a desire for the loveliness of God? What is what is it that I feel deadened in my heart? You know, because the Lord will show you, because He knows. And then you, as you pray about that in community with His Word, you begin to realize. Well, what's dead is I no longer seem to want him, you know, or something like that. And then someone could say, uh, let's define the relationship. Which him do you mean? Which Jesus do you mean? Because maybe you shouldn't desire some of the Jesus pictures that are in your head. Do you know what I mean? So sometimes a deadened desire is a good thing. It means that we're no longer desiring an illusion. And we're being rescued from that once we've determined that and been helped then the next thing is we just offer that desire to the lord and i know that you know it it's uh it's saying to him you know lord i i don't desire you and I, I want to i want to want you i desire to desire you would you would you work that in me and you then you just take the next step and go eat lunch. <laughs> you know? And um, continue to set that in front of him. And the first part of that, I'm thinking about a guy who came and said, I don't want God anymore. He said that he, um, he'd stopped living like a Christian for the last eight months, began to live as if there was no God. And he's missing God. Well, that's significant, but he doesn't want to believe in the God who tortures people forever. You know, so for him it was hell. Question about hell: a God who just loves to torture people endlessly, and uh, he doesn't desire a God like that. Well, I get to say, well, to start with, I don't desire a God like that either. And thanks be to the Lord, that's just not the God. Pictured for us in the Bible, it just happily tortures people forever. <laughs> I love it, you know. Yeah, I reject that too. Good. Don't desire that. So let's let's uh, let's discover together the picture of who God is according to the Scripture, and see if that arouses our affection and our desire for Him. That's a start. Yeah. With God, um, yes. It has to happen yes. In my life. And um, I think it's two different answers, but sometimes it's talking about a specific thing happening in the world or what happened to that person. Or it's talking about um, things the Lord did in the Old Testament or um, things like that. Yeah. Basically, thinking of God as like a moral monster. Yes. How do you respond to that? Not quickly. So that's such an important question for our time, but for every time. Uh, if someone's asking, so first thought, if someone's saying, why did this happen to me? And they're in the midst of uh, some type of trauma, my answer is, I don't know, but I'm here. I don't know, but I'm here with you. Uh, so... Yeah, if you're, if, if, you're, if you're with people in Las Vegas as a shooter is shooting down and taking people's lives or if you're in a hospital emergency room with a young couple who's holding their baby who just died and those kinds of, you're in Puerto Rico and someone's saying why our first answer is I don't know because that's the truth. We don't know but we're here. And our being there uh, pictures the answer, part of the answer, that they're not alone in it. And somewhere along the line, six months later, we could begin to have part two to the answer. So, uh, And part two to that answer is just um, uh, there are things that will happen to each one of us and to those we love which isn't unique to any of us. It's the nature of the world that the Bible describes as once Eden, you know, life under the sun. People get sick here. People die here. People do ruthless things to one another here. When um, in Luke chapter 13, a tower fell and killed a bunch of people. And some folks came to Jesus and said, whose fault was it? Who sinned? And Jesus says, well, nobody. Nobody. Uh, But reflect on this. Think about your life. Repent if you need to. Uh, Not because... um, the thirteen people or whatever were being uniquely judged by a tower falling. Jesus. But because this is the nature of things, towers fall and people do this stuff and we reflect on the nature of the world and what evil is and we have to come to terms with that. That's the, the way down the road part two of the answer. The way down the road part three of the answer is that the the person who believes there is no God is in the same quandary. Uh, Without cleverness, but earnestly, a friend who is agnostic or um, doesn't believe in God at all, it's a very fair question to ask them, well, what's your answer for evil? I don't have one. Well, it's the chemicals in our brain. Wow, that's, that's rough then. We're, you know, Things like that. So, and then the final part of an answer down the road is going to have to be, why is there good in the world? So the, the question comes, why is there evil in the world? I don't know, but I'm with you. As healing comes, as months and months later comes, we're looking at these things, not from the inside, but looking at them more then why is there good? Why doesn't good quit? Where does good come from? Why doesn't it stop? No matter how many wars we've had, no matter how many tragedies, no how many brutalities, no matter how many of all these things, uh, something persists, <laughs> you know? So um, maybe a way to capture this, there's a commercial a little while ago, and it was something, it was probably insurance, maybe it was Allstate or something, Uh, and there are sharks in the ocean, but we still swim, you know, Uh, or another commercial, you see a group of, uh, you see a group of guys playing basketball in wheelchairs, they're all in wheelchairs, they're playing wheelchair basketball, you know, the guy makes the basket, everyone cheers, the game is over. Four guys stand up out of their wheelchair, one still sitting. The one's wheeling off, the others are walking. It's a Guinness beer commercial. But they're picturing something that I'm getting at. Friendship doesn't stop, why? Why not? Love doesn't quit, why not? Even the tragedy and whatever the story is, it has that man in a wheelchair. Uh, He can still enjoy the taste of a Guinness, right? That's their point. But we're asking, why doesn't it quit? Uh, Good may seem to cease in my life, and yet it doesn't quit in other places. And then it shows up in my life, and maybe it seems like it's not in yours, but I'm saying, I don't know, it's it's still persisting. So that's a fourth part of that. Getting at that, I know. Why is there evil? Why do these things happen? Why does God do it? Why is there good? Why doesn't good quit? Why does it keep going? What is that, what is that fact? What does that piece of data tell us too? Yeah. These are very deep waters, but the key is if you're in the midst of it, if you're on the inside with someone, please don't give them any kind of answers. Just say you don't know, because we really don't. And, but I'm here. And be like Job's friends and tear your clothes and be in ashes with them. And remember that once they started trying to open their mouth and give answers, everything went wrong. <laughs> uh, yeah, something like that. We're going to pass now. Great. We'll be chapel tomorrow as well. And I think a little bit of time for question and answer. So we'll table those and bring them tomorrow. Yeah. Let's thank you all for Wow, good. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Okay.